Hey, everybody. Welcome to Engaging the Phenomenon. And today we have a very special guest. Um, he is a friend and mentor of mine I've known for many years. He, I call him the unsung hero of the Contact Underground. He is a, has a rich knowledge and you know, personal experience of early contact work in the field. So welcome to the show, Joe. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you. So just, just for people who may not be familiar with you, um, you know, your name is Joseph Burks, MD. Correct. So you're an MD. Um, and everybody calls you Dr. Joe. You have a long history uh, with contact work. And, um, I, you know, I, you're such an untapped potential in the field. It's, it's, um, it's insane. So I'm really happy to have you on here to go into some of the, some of the deep stuff. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, well, just let me uh, say that I'm class of 76, Tufts University School of Medicine. Internal medicine was my training. I worked for 30 years for the Southern California Permanente Medical Group, and I had a very diverse practice. I was in the office. I was a hospitalist. I worked emergency room for 10 years, did nursing homes, helped drug addicts uh, recovery and chemical dependency recovery program. Uh, so I, I had lots of very um, broad internal medicine, general medicine uh, training and practice. Uh, but I had uh, extracurricular activities. I, I grew up during the 60s. So I was a student activist in pretty much all the major social movements uh, that were from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I was born in 1949 uh, and uh, grew up in Greenwich Village, which was a, a left-wing political hotspot. And we, as children, were demonstrating against nuclear testing. At that time, both the United States and the Soviet Union were pouring explosives, nuclear weapons detonating all over the world and radiation was getting into the deciduous teeth of children. So women, including my mom, were marching uh, to stop atmospheric testing because the kids were getting irradiated and they succeeded in pressuring the governments of the world, Soviet Union under Khrushchev and United States under John F. Kennedy to sign a nuclear test ban, no more atmospheric testing between the United States and Soviet Union. But I was also active in the anti-war movement, uh, anti-Vietnam War, with civil rights. Uh, we had many student strikes for integration. As a college student, war raged on and Finally, when I was in medical school, the war came to an end, but I was part of a group of left-wing doctors called Medical Committee for Human Rights. We promoted a national health plan, which still has yet to be uh, created in the United States, although countries all over the world, like England, Europe, they all have advanced healthcare systems. We are profit-based and rather backward. So. I also had got involved with the labor movement in terms of occupational health and safety and did all these sort of things along with being a doctor and trying to help my wife as much as I could. I wish I had done more to help raise our two children who are now young adults and they have, well, my their daughter has a, a child and uh, there's one on the way. So I'm a grandpa too. Congratulations. I'm not quite there yet. I got a, a few, quite a few years, I hope. Um, so you're, you're, you know, an, I guess I can say you're an activist, you know, you're, you know, and part of all these revolutionary movements, I can say, um, you know, kind of um, trying to make an impact on the world, you're a medical doctor, and how do you find yourself with UFOs? 
Well, part of uh, my work as an activist, international peace activist, I went to the former Soviet Union on four occasions and we had peace delegations. The doctors on both sides of the Iron Curtain uh, were putting out medical information about the consequences of nuclear war. So we called it in those days, citizen diplomacy. And as a child, I'd read science fiction and Star Trek was, you know, when I was a teenager. And but I, to me, it was all science fiction. I never had a sighting, never read an article or a book about UFOs, although I did remember the 1975 movie. I was in medical school at the time. Betty and Barney Hill uh, story was told with the famous actor James Earl Jones. Uh, so I knew about that UFOs existed, but it was for me mostly fiction. However, for reasons that I could only guess at in 1990, I um, felt I needed a hobby. So I went down to the local library and I cannot explain why I said, give me a book on, I don't know, UFOs. And it was the amazing Gulf Breeze sightings by Ed and Francis Walters. And uh, I read about the wave of sightings in Gulf Breeze in the late 1980s. So I read and started reading about the subject. About a year later, I decided I'd get my courage to go up to, to my first UFO meeting. And it was June, 1992. And who did I find but a tall bearded uh, emergency room doctor. I was doing ER at the time. And he said his name was Dr. Stephen Greer and had developed a technique to attract UFOs to secure research sites as part of a citizen's diplomatic initiative with the so-called extraterrestrials. So a little light went on, ah, citizens diplomacy, huh? So I got quite interested. Uh, there were many similarities between Dr. Greer and myself. Uh, we both were working emergency room. We both had young children at home and we both married Jewish women who were in his case, five years older than him. And my wife, Yael, is six years older than me. So there were kind of interesting similarities, but the differences was when I was, a I was a student activist, he was into consciousness. He became a TM instructor. And uh, the original uh, incentive was citizens diplomacy. Uh, however, uh, it's not what I expected, but um, and we can get into some of the sightings maybe uh, later, or perhaps even now would be a good place. But I was, I was impressed by the rapidity of uh, the contact that we had. I had my first sighting when I went to my first workshop in West, in West Palm Beach uh, on the Florida coast, Atlantic. And um, we did the protocols and sure enough, heavy overcast, a blue green light moving about 90 to 100 miles an hour flew over us underneath the cloud cover. Um, it was not a meteor. It was not a tracer round from a bullet. I had seen my first UFO. So I was, I was excited about the prospects when Dr. Greer said, there is a team uh, that we, he would like to form in uh, California. You need a working group coordinator. I said, uh, you're, you're speaking to him now, I volunteer. So um, we got started and a series of amazing synchronicities occurred that brought my team together. I had the dream team for doing UFO work. And uh, perhaps at some later time, I can talk about all the strange ways that uh, brought our team together. But we had three physicians, believe this, from the same medical group who happened to come together. We had a, two PhD psychologists, a Harvard graduate with a degree in psychology and film writing. 
there was a, 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 a um, young man, he was the youngest member of the team, who was a burgeoning author. I'm talking about Preston Dennett, who-, who Oh, uh, no way, was it really? Yes, that's right. And no way. He was part of the team too. And uh, uh, it was really great to have uh, such talent. Uh, he went on, of course, to write over 25 books on UFOs. But we did our, we cut our contact teeth together uh, yeah. in, in the mountains surrounding Southern California. So, and we also had some wealthy people on the team. There was a, uh, a woman who was, uh, you might say uh, an heiress, married to a, a very prominent lawyer. Uh, and um, her name was Dotha Wayburn. We had Dr. Dixie Sullivan, I mentioned a clinical practicing PhD psychologist. So all this talent came together and we, there were even people in my medical center who attended uh, Dr. Greer's uh, workshop that got me interested. And we, did, we arrived separately. We didn't know each other in terms of our interest in UFOs. We were just working in the same hospital or the same medical group. So these were synchronicities that seemed to indicate that perhaps friends in high places were coordinating our group coming together. And just for people listening, when you say friends in high places, what are you what are you referring to? I'm talking about UFO intelligence, yeah. flying saucer intelligence. Um, you know, uh, because of my background in movements for social change, um, I realized that there was a, a potential for our group to be under surveillance, and uh, and so as I did the work, uh, I realized that the intelligence counterintelligence model that was put forward by Val German about 25 years ago. Um, he was a researcher who said, there's many different paradigms. You can say this is a scientific investigation. CE5 is not, and we can explain some of the reasons why. We could call it a diplomatic initiative, which was Dr. Greer's selling point among many others, which didn't pan out. We, but we weren't any kind of diplomatic initiative like you have on planet Earth. What was it? Was it uh, a new age cultural spiritual movement? Perhaps that was getting closer. Um, or was it, as I mentioned, a counterintelligence intelligence operation? And, and the intelligence behind the phenomena seemed to be directing us in ways that we triggered the interest of the executive branch intelligence services. And that's a whole nother discussion. But it became very clear from the beginning of our contact work that our team was under surveillance. And I can talk about the specifics if you want. Yeah, sure. First, I actually, I wanna go into, so these, these are the early CSETI years. You're talking- 1992. Yeah, 92 and you know shortly after. So, right. uh, you know, what was it like in the, in the early days? Because I, I, I'm going to have you come on. We're going to have several discussions. This is going to be like an entire series again, because you're, you know, you have such a wealth of knowledge and we're going to talk about everything from uh, your early working group to uh, the consciousness stuff to the, uh, the virtual reality uh, hypothesis and, and all that. We're going to get into all that. Um, but for the sake of this one, I'm, I'm trying to go back into like the, the contact underground, the contact history, sure. the contact network. So mm -hmm. for... For, so um, in the early days, the, the first working group was established uh, and had a very short life in, in Asheville, North Carolina, 1991. Um, if you read um, 
Dr. Greer's uh, oral history, Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge, I think is the title. Yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of background information. Everything that he describes in that book was accessible to us uh, through our discussions with the CSETI director. So we knew as a, uh, in terms of, as a matter of fate, we, we, we trusted his information at the time. And I, I can say that in thinking about Dr. Greer, for me, it's important to envision two frameworks. The first one was the man that I admired and followed halfway around the world doing contact work with. Mexico, United Kingdom. Uh, I traveled all across the United States and into Canada, organizing working groups uh, during the early days. Um, that was the man that I admired and as I said, um, followed all over the world. Then there was the man he's become today. And so for me, Dr. Greer will always be my, he was my greatest hope and my greatest disappointment. And we can talk about that. But in the early years, the excitement was just palpable in terms of the early working group operations. The uh, encounter that he had in Alton Barnes, where if you've seen the television program, Sightings, it's portrayed from, um, it's just on the internet. You can maybe put up a link. Uh, yeah. It shows the report on the uh, July, 1992 encounter where a UFO uh, 90 feet across, came across a field towards uh, the CE5 team. When that event occurred, excitement spread across the internet was the early days. But even before that was the Gulf Breeze encounter, uh, March 1992, where no less than 40 uh, volunteer contact workers, and that's the term that I like to use, activists or contact workers, because it's a lot of work, although you don't get paid, at least not in <laughs> <laughs> not for us we get maybe fringe benefits in terms of being part of an amazing process of contact right. with non intelligence but uh no no greenbacks for this work so it's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're volunteer contact workers well you know dr greer got footage of that gulf breeze sighting that was spread all over the internet and and it was just very exciting days. Is that is that the one where um, the guys like holy damn hot shit? Right, that's right. You got yeah. we got a CE five right. This was good old boys in Florida. Yeah, yeah. But coincidentally, that event happened at the in the same place where I had read a book about the amazing Gulf Breeze sightings. Right. That was the first yeah. book that I read in in December of 1990 on UFOs. So there was this synchronicity there as well that I was. I was prepared to understand what happened in March of 92 when they, uh, when the director caused panic uh, among some of the people who were unprepared when he said, we're going to emergency protocols and we're gonna have a landing and a boarding if possible. A number of people in that group who were not with the program according uh, to the CSETI director got so panic stricken that they got in their cars and drove away immediately. This happened also similarly um, with Sixto Pas Wells uh, and his Rama group during their initial contact work outside of Lima, Peru, uh, in a place called um, well, it's La Minas. It's a uh, it's uh, a desert location uh, south uh, of um, Lima. And, and during Lima, Sixto Pas Wells' initial contact, people weren't prepared. And when the UFO actually did show up. 
uh, and flew over them at a very low altitude, people panicked and ran away. So we knew that mental work, meditation, being able to access consciousness in its most unbounded form was a very important part of the program to help us overcome fear, to also send a coherent message telepathically. And I can state from 30 years of working in this field that the intelligence that we are engaged with can access human consciousness as readily as you and I access light by turning on a wall switch. Uh, I believe that. Yeah, is yeah absolutely. I, I think so. And I think, um, I think, you know, things like that are, are going to end up being a more public conversation as time goes on. You know, I think a lot of people dealing with the deeper research understand that, but for the, as far as the public, um, the general public goes, we're going to have uh, a little way to get there, but that's also through conversations like these where we can, you know, open people up to uh, those kind of ideas and, and realities. And, um, you know, I just want to note here, um, you know, there's, you know, obviously we're, we're talking about Dr. Stephen Greer and you, know, you bring up his name and you usually get a knee jerk reaction. It's either kind of like a hero worship thing, like, you know, Dr. Greer is the best. He's done everything right. Or, you know, he's the worst and he has done nothing right. Um, right. I would say both are true, depending on what <laughs> historic period right, right. you look at. Uh, during the early years, uh, our efforts were guided by very high ideals. There was uh, the CSETI director, Dr. Greer, charged $40 for a workshop and $40 for membership in CSETI. And almost every time he went out in the field, you were guaranteed to have a sighting. I mean, I, I witnessed this. So the connection between Dr. Greer and flying saucer intelligence was very strong. Right, in fact, right. if you want to look at the intelligence, counterintelligence model of human, non-human intelligence relations, you can say that Dr. Greer was an agent of IFLAS working for both sides, for both yeah. UFO intelligence and the sections of the national security state, both corporate contractors and um, intelligence services, uh, CIA, Office of Naval Intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. Both sides, uh, both the non-human and the humans were working Stephen Greer. And I got to see the process unfold uh, in a very dramatic way. Okay, now I, I definitely wanna to get to that, but just, just before we get to that, cause that's an important part of this entire history really of, of uh, you know, the contact underground or, you know, this, this contact work that uh, me and yourself uh, have found us self-caught in, you know, right in the middle of. Um, I, I, do, uh, I do want you to discuss the, the, uh, the CE5 um, experience from Mexico before we get into that, just because it's, it's a pretty incredible event. Yeah, I think, I and, think Mexico is very important, um, but I have to say that I should also mention that our team had, Mexico was February, 1993. Our team had been going into the field already for eight months before that event occurred, um, seven months, yeah. So I had already had a series of contact experiences before Mexico and they were quite remarkable. Um, for example, in the Santa Susana Pass, we had these very powerful lights that signaled at us and there was a consciousness link between myself and the intelligence behind the phenomena. Uh, we had um, many sightings of anomalous nocturnal lights uh, and uh, in a, a, a spectacular display of psi virtuosity, 
yeah. the intelligence behind the phenomena staged a series of sightings for individually for my team. I had a sighting the first week as I was driving home on the 405 freeway, a blue green light silently flew overhead. It was not an aircraft. You can always tell in Los Angeles because the cloud cover is illuminated from a million lights. So you can see the silhouette of any plane flying overhead. Uh, a week or two later, uh, another member of the team had a sighting. Uh, it was a broad daylight sighting of a metallic disc hovering over the Santa Monica Mountains. And finally, later that first month, uh, Dotha Weyburn, who had this very nice home in the Palos Verdes Peninsula, it's sort of like Beverly Hills on the ocean, very fancy. She's driving up the, up the, uh, up the uh, road leading to her home after she's attended a meditation session and hovering over her house is a light which she's never seen before. As it comes down towards her to meet her as she's driving up, she sees it's a 30 foot glowing mother of pearl orb. And telepathically, she gets the message, you were looking for us, well, here we are. And then it flew off over the Pacific. So from the very beginning, our team was being worked by the intelligence behind the phenomena. They recognized our efforts and they staged these sightings, which had, a lot of coherence. All of us were in our cars. All of us were alone. All of us were driving south when these sightings occurred over a month period, separate from one another. Right. So, so now I wanted to lay that down to explain that our team was successful even before my trip to Mexico. Right. Yeah. And this this trip to Mexico, I mean, it's a, a pretty. I I think it's noteworthy. And I, I think it's important because uh, a lot of people in the audience are not familiar with this rich history of the contact work that was going on and, and the type of contact encounters that were taking place. So I think yeah. it's incredibly important to note, um, you know, back in these days, there were some incredible encounters going on. It wasn't just orbs in the sky and flashes of light. No, um, no. So I, I, it's important. Yeah, it's really important for people to hear this history. And, so, um, so, so Mexico, as many people may recall from history, uh, of course, some of you weren't born in uh, the summer of 1991, but over Mexico City, there was a total eclipse of the sun and uh, hundreds of thousand people saw beneath the eclipsing sun, uh, a glowing UFO that was recorded by 16 videographers. So this is July, 1991. So there was, that triggered a wave of sightings across all of Mexico, but, but especially around the volcano, which as you may recall, uh, you know your geography, Popocatépetl volcano, it's an active volcano, 17,000 feet in elevation. And periodic eruptions over the centuries has been the source of agricultural wealth in that region, but also tremendous destruction. So we had heard about sightings that were ongoing around the volcano and the CSETI director wanted to organize a team. Because I speak Spanish, because I had already had experience, as I mentioned, six months of doing contact work, I got the privilege of being selected to go on the, uh, what was called back in the old days, RMIT. Rapid Mobilization Investigative Team. We were never rapidly mo mobilized. It took us about three months to get, get it together. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, the, the wave of sightings were ongoing. Uh, we had on our team, uh, Sherry Adamek, who I mentioned, uh, 
uh, there was only three active teams during the early years. Hers was the first in 1991. She was a paralegal uh, specialist and uh, she headed the Denver team. Then there was uh, our team in Los Angeles. Then Wayne Peterson in December of 1992 started going into the field. And those groups were the, the nucleus in the Western United States. Other attempts to do ongoing field work according to the team model were made, efforts were made, but we were able to sustain our activities for several years. Uh, right. I was, uh, my team was operational until the fall of 1990, the fall of 1997. So yeah. for almost, uh, well, for five years, yeah, that was it. So, so I got to go to Mexico and um, you know, we had some difficulties, as you can imagine, we're um, traveling in a country that's of tremendous contrast, the culture was different. And uh, right as we left the airport, we got into trouble because there's corrupt Mexico City police who stopped our vehicles and tried to shake us down for, they wanted 300,000 pesos claiming that our papers were not in order. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to yeah. negotiate in Spanish and we got the bribe down from 300,000 pesos to I think it was about 50,000 pesos, which was about $17 instead of quite a bit more over 100. So then we were on our way and we went to a place called Metapec, which is on the western slope. And we had heard about this town because there had been a, a sighting recorded there where a UFO hovered over a, a wedding and we had seen the videos. Yeah. And the videographer kept going back and forth between the, the bride and the groom and this UFO. So this is about 6,000 feet elevation. And we, we started to drive, up. it's on the Western slope of the volcano. We drove up um, over 10,000 feet on a road that goes to 15,000 feet. The top is 17,000 feet. So we were in an Alpine forest, which was a big surprise to me uh, because I didn't expect us to have that kind of terrain. And we were meditating in a, in a grove surrounded by pine trees. Uh, while we were doing that, I noted some very strange aerial phenomena. We've heard about crop formations, but also contactees will describe what could be called cloud formations, anomalous cloud formations. One of which was a cloud that was shaped like a World War II battleship, like a cruiser. You could see the turrets. I mean, it was, it was bizarre. And it started coming right at us uh, in the sky, a cloud. And then as it moved along the side of the volcano coming towards us, it hit a point where a tremendous wind started blowing against the cloud and it turned on a right angle, like a box cars on a train that takes a, a sharp angle. And each section of this cloud formation turned and moved away from us. That's told me something was pretty weird. You know, yeah. At one point, we're meditating and a light out of the sky comes down and hits our group. It was so bright that it reflected off. It was centered on the C-City director, Dr. Greer's face. The light flashed back, reflected off his face into the forest. And what I saw was not him being hit, but the reflected rays coming off his face, which was pretty strange. So we assumed that we had made contact at that point. We then went around to the other side of the volcano the next day. Oh. The first night, we're at about 10 or 11,000 feet and we're looking down on the town of Metapec and we're seeing these golden globes, UFOs, flying over the town of Metapec. Wow, and yeah. 
it was spectacular because most people, except for pilots, are used to looking up. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Wow. We're looking down. We did signal at them. They did not respond. So following that, we then went to the other side of the volcano. We set up our work in a uh, outside of Puebla in a small uh, town. Uh, I think it was called Atibayaya. And uh, outside of Atlisco, which is a satellite city from Puebla. And we're at the base of the, the volcano. And... Uh, this is, I think, February 1st, 1993, um, around uh, 10.30, no, it's closer to midnight. Um, we see an anomalous light between the two volcanoes. It was about seven miles away. And the light was amber, it was moving towards us. But only, it, at first it was moving sort of oblique, at an oblique angle, but when we, fired the uh, half a million candle signal lantern, the light changed its direction and started heading right towards us. Yeah. And, and as it approached, we got to see that it was a, a very large triangular shaped structured object. This is at night. Um, we then signaled at it several times and it signaled back one flash from us, one flash from the object, totally silent. It went over a ridge line at about a mile distance from us, I could see a small church on the ridge line, and the church was maybe 50 feet across, but the object was was clearly several hundred feet across at least, very large, coming towards us, signaling in response to us. It was accompanied by what you might call a scout ship, a small disc, and as the larger craft came in towards us, the smaller one shot up, and this, this is a behavior that other uh, contact workers have described in terms of the smaller craft going to high ground like a security position. What, whatever the reason was, yeah, the the object, the larger one, the mothership, was you know at least two hundred feet across. But it's hard to measure distances at night and size. It looked like it was coming in for a landing, and to simulate th that effect, landing lights or powerful lights in the front of the triangle turned on as it slowed to a virtual crawl of maybe 10 or 15 miles an hour. All the while we're signaling at it and it's signaling back at us. So for me, that was like an epiphany. Yeah, was, yeah. Just, and, and how large did this craft seem like? You know, it's very hard. If you say, if you say the average uh, scout ship or flying saucer is 30, 40, 50 feet across, it was at least four times that. So it was yeah. between 100 and 300 feet across. It yeah. blocked out the sky. It was totally silent. It was not the Goodyear blimp. It was not the Mexican Air Force on maneuvers. It wasn't Venus. Uh, it was a structured object under intelligence control, intelligent control. And one of the team members actually had um, been able to biolocate into the craft and she was able to observe what she said she thought were the crew uh, yeah. who, we're coming in to interact with us. I can't verify that, but I can verify that all of us saw it. However, things went awry because in UFO subculture, if you don't have video evidence, then the debunkers or wannabe debunkers will say it didn't happen. And if you do have video evidence, then it's a hoax. So we had brought a lot of expensive equipment, uh, an Olympus 60 uh, power uh, state of the art, 
video camera. We had a uh, 35 millimeter uh, single lens reflex with a computer chip. All our equipment, which was working perfectly before the event, ceased functioning. And uh, yeah, we made sure that the lens cover was taken off. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, even the cheap 110 camera, which is like a brownie old film camera, when you yeah. try to, it was spring operated. When you try to press the spring, it wouldn't click. Right. So, it was some kind of high strangeness event that we were not being allowed to photograph this event. As soon as um, the object got within maybe 200 feet or 300 feet of our position, it turned slowly, showed its belly, it turned sideways so we could see its full size and then turned and started heading back towards the volcano. But even as it moved towards the volcano, as if to say adios, when we signaled at it, it signaled back and forth from the rear lights. Each There were lights on each of the apices of the triangle with the red yeah. light beneath or amber. Yeah. Well, that, that was, you know, for me, that was a tremendous experience because although I had had sightings before as a result of my contact work, I'd never seen anything as dramatic. And the thoughts brought me back to my work in the uh, doctor's peace movement because during the height of the Cold War, when both the United States and Soviet Union were on hair trigger alert, we used to imagine that a nuclear holocaust could occur where all the cities in the Northern hemisphere would be torched. And uh, I'd been part of a movement where Dr. Helen Caldecott, who was a peace activist said, what does this say about humanity that we're prepared to destroy ourselves? It bespeaks of a hatred of ourself, our children, and if there's a creator of God herself. So, so that was in my mind that if we, even if we take the nuclear end, even if our planet or our civilization is destroyed, I imagined somewhat naively, of course, I was quite idealistic and somewhat innocent at the time, that there might be uh, friendly ETs who would remember the great late planet Earth and their children would be told about our civilization that had not evolved spiritually, uh, but had evolved technologically to destroy ourselves. So for me, that was like, a very powerful moment because it was the culmination of my contact work up to that point and then many years of peace activism. And the fact that our contact efforts were posed as a way of bridging the gap between non-human and human intelligences, I still imagine at that point that we were part of a citizen's diplomatic initiative. All right, and I, I think that's a very important ideal. You know, I think ideals like that are, are great to strive for. Um, and, you know, it's 2021, things... Uh, you know, things are a little mixed up nowadays, but, you know, hopefully we can have uh, strong ideals like that. Now, you have all these in incredible encounters going on. Uh, and these are the early days of CSETI. And um, you got to be there and witness all this and, and kind of the, the growth and development uh, of, of CSETI, the center. Um, what is it? I'm drawing center a blank here. Intelligence. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, CSETI. The center was... Never really a center. Uh, Dr. Greer used to, perhaps he still does. I don't follow his uh, speeches much anymore. It's, it's kind of painful to listen to how, how much he's changed. But it really boiled down to Dr. Greer and Emily, his wife, and, and we're running an organization out of their uh, office. So what was, yeah, I was going to say, what was, so what was Dr. Greer like back then? Was he, is he the same person we see today out giving lectures? 
No, uh, no, he's not the same person. He, he was uh, a person who uh, was, in my judgment, guided by high ideals. He uh, was given a mandate from non-human intelligence to develop the organization, which he did found. And uh, uh, he, uh, his, because he was able to practice medicine at the same time, which was you know, a tremendous chore, his wife is, has they had four daughters. He was working 50 hours a week, many overnights in the emergency room, as was I. And he was founding this contact or organization. All that took tremendous ambition and drive and energy, uh, which he had along a very idealistic quest. However, as time went on, things weren't the same. And sometimes things turn into their opposites. So when 1998, when he gave up his practice of medicine around that time, he sort of, and he had to um, support himself and his family in the, in a manner that they were accustomed to, which for an emergency room doctor is earning between 100 and $300,000 a year at that time. And I should say that Dr. Greer was earning more money as an ER doctor than I was during those years. So he was very highly paid. And when he gave up his practice, he uh, had to raise money in other ways. And uh, he got a lot of support, some very wealthy, powerful people, some very idealistic people who, uh, followed him, supported him. I, I got to meet some of his uh, sponsors. However, uh, with time, uh, it became more of a business. And, uh, you know, that's regrettable. And, uh, but that's, that's real. You're not going to have someone with that amount of drive and ambition who's going to uh, let his family suffer uh, because uh, he's not earning the income uh, that he, they're, they're accustomed to. So, money played a big role. His relationship with the intelligence services is a very long and complicated story, which I'm not sure we're going to have time to really go into it. Um, but I would put forward to the audience that it's helpful to think about Dr. Greer as an agent of influence. He was clearly uh, under the direction of non-human intelligence because everywhere he went during the early years, there were clear-cut manifestations of contact. As years went on, that diminished considerably, but never really went away. And I should say that a similar process occurred with Sixto Pasquels uh, in the network that was known initially as Mission Rama. And we can talk about them as well, uh, because I got to meet some of the very heavy hitters in Mission Rama and did field work with them, which was also very exciting, not in Peru, but uh, uh, near Mount Shasta uh, in Northern California. So. I think honestly, we're gonna we're gonna do an entire uh, episode on that because that's a fascinating thing. Not too many people uh, know the real deep history of of Mission Rama. People picked it up later in the game, like Grant Cameron has started talking about it. But um, you were around in the early days, and you saw a lot of stuff. You spoke to a lot you, of people. I was I was I made contact with Fernando Lamaco, who was very closely associated with Sixtos Pasquels in uh, the fall of 1993. And we yeah. maintained a, a relationship for another 20 years. Yeah, so that that we're going to definitely do another a whole episode on on Mission Rama because I think that's such an important part of the, the contact network history um, and the contact underground. Uh, but I, I do want to, you, you, you mentioned Dr. Greer getting involved with the intelligence community. Yeah. And, um, you know, Grant Cameron, he wrote the extraordinary book 
uh, Managing Magic, which lay out these kind of themes of how the intelligence community and, uh, you know, white hats or maybe gray hats or maybe even black hats got involved with UFO researchers trying to put out disclosure through whatever means they had. So right. where, where does Dr. Greer's role come up in that? Well, I think uh, everyone should either get the book, Managing Magic, and read it, or yeah. watch one of the many uh, videos that Grant Cameron goes through, the history of the, uh, he calls it gradual acclimatization project. So we have not a monolithic program of ridicule and denial, the so-called UFO truth embargo. From the very beginning, forces primarily within the executive branch of the United States government have back-channeled putting out a combination of very accurate information and some misinformation or disinformation to hide their sources. So this back-channeling has always existed. You can ask the question, why? Why would they do that? From my point of view, because I came from the background of social activism, I saw the UFO phenomena as being inherently destabilizing to the status quo. What is the status quo? It's the instruments of power. This subject, in my judgment, threatens all terrestrial elites, the military, corporate interests, sections of the religious elite. It threatens academia, as we all very well know. They've been putting their head in the sand for 70 years. And so the problem that people who are trying to manage uh, the UFO situation is that they do not have control over the intelligence responsible for the phenomenon. And if for some reason, uh, the intelligence ratches up the level of contact in terms of sightings and other interactions, the government doesn't wanna be completely flat footed and, and people basically losing it as a result of the shock of being faced with a non-human intelligence that's totally telepathic and has extraordinary technology. So as a, as a way of dealing with that imbalance of power, like, like Grant Cameron likes to uh, quote a, a very high executive official, who's running the UFO program? And the answer was, they are. Yeah. So-called yeah. extraterrestrials. So, so in order to provide us with a cushion, uh, uh, sort of like a life insurance or a mental health insurance policy for the planet Earth, this back channeling has been going along all the way. In order to promote that program, they need people to put forward the information. It can't come from the government because you have to uh, maintain UFO secrecy. So they find individuals and Grant in his analysis talks about the UFO messiahs. He mentions five. The, the most important ones are uh, Bill Moore uh, in the 1980s, Dr. Stephen Greer in the 1990s going up until, well, up until recently where his role has been eclipsed by uh, the third uh, Tom DeLong, uh, yeah. UFO messiah. So the, all these uh, very important and energetic and somewhat charismatic individuals are used to bring out information from the, from the intelligence services to prepare the public. Uh, how much time do we have left? Um, we're not really technically on the clock, so we can go into whatever we need to. But I mean, so but you got to witness, you know, Dr. Greer having these incredible encounters and then being approached by people in the intelligence community and, and basically the military industrial complex. 
Right. Um, I'm, I'm going to share with you information that um, I've written about, but I've never spoken about it publicly. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of it is found is found in Dr. Greer's book, uh, his oral history, the biography of sorts, but some of which he's never written down. So if you if you want, I can give you my best recollection of the information that he shared, not only with me, but his closest confidence, Dr. Well, um, I should say, Wayne Peterson and Sherry Adamiak, yeah. uh, both of which are no longer with us. Those are the working group coordinators that were my co-workers in Western United States during the early years. Um, so if you read uh, the oral history, Forbidden All the Hidden Truth, yeah. He describes uh, developing the technique of coherent thought sequencing as a teenager. Um, and by the way, Dr. Greer is not unique in the cap capacity to call in the craft. In fact, in, in the course of my organizing work, I developed a specific term for such individuals who are the center of attention of the phenomenon. I call them prime contactees. You know, they're, yeah. they're first among equals, as we like to say. Yeah. And this is a, these are people who are follow a similar course. Uh, they have an MO, modus operandi. Um, most of them are men, although I met one or two female prime contactees. Um, at an early age, they have sightings. Uh, without any parental supervision, they start doing meditation or yoga and are able to achieve uh, altered states of consciousness that facilitate telepathic communication. They then um, get the desire to form a contact group or a team, or they join the existing teams, and they are the center of the phenomena. And in my organizing efforts, I would go out and look for people like that um, because it's like, it's like Willie Sutton was a bank robber. They say, why do you rob banks, Willie? He says, that's where the money is. <laughs> Yeah. So I was organizing teams of contact activists. Why do I look for prime contactees? Because that's where the money is. They are the center of the phenomena. And if you can help facilitate a, a team process, this can build a network, which is the network that I somewhat romantically call the contact underground. Yeah. So, so there are many other people like the CSETI director, the way he was back in the old days. In fact, UFO Intelligence sent one directly to me, which is another right. story. And as soon as that uh, person surfaced in my emergency room, believe it or not, as an EKG tech, the level of contact on my team went way up. And I personally started having telepathic communications that predicted where, when, and the number of craft that were going to show up in the course of field work. I was getting that at the level of knowledge. So we talk about Stephen Greer. He's really just the tip of the iceberg. There are many icebergs. And I think people in the audience should be prepared to, to deal with the possibility that this intelligence has the capacity to telepathically interact with not thousands, but hundreds of thousands or millions of people simultaneously. And they are driving the contact network and they are interacting with individuals on a scale that has not been revealed to the American people or the people of the world, but is suggested uh, by uh, the number of people who are now coming forward and acknowledging sightings and other interactions. So that said, let's go back to Stephen Greer's story, all right? 
So he's a, he's a prime contactee, meditation, develops a technique of being able to attract the phenomena. And he claimed to have an onboard experience when he was 18 or 19 years old and he's gone board and he's meditating with the ETs. Um, but he had other things to do like raise a family and become a doctor. And so um, he abandoned his uh, contact efforts until perhaps 1989, and which he had a very powerful sense that it was time for him to pick up the work again. Around that time, he also alleged privately, but he, he did not write about it, but he um, had a second onboard experience. They allegedly picked him up in front of his house in Asheville, North Carolina that I got a chance to visit. It's a very wealthy neighborhood, Biltmore Forest. And he had a, a front lawn that was the size of a football field. And uh, the craft allegedly brought him there, brought, I mean, landed there and took him to a place that he described was like the backside of the moon. And um, there he was uh, reportedly observed UFOs on the surface of the moon that were the size of aircraft car carriers, rectangular shaped craft with purple lightning and going back and forth uh, between the surface of that satellite, he assumed it was the moon, and the, these enormous craft. And the message he was left with was these craft were charging up in the sense like capacitors or charging energy in preparation for the, the level of contact that was going to increase during the 1990s. Now, this is an interesting story, but, but what has it got to do with his involvement with the intelligence services? Well, if you read his, his book, uh, he describes uh, in 19, late 1989, early 1990, uh, President Bush the first was in power and there was a drug summit that was going to happen in um, Colombia. And while CSETI director Stephen Greer and his wife Emily were visiting Washington DC, he got a telepath, what he described as a telepathic override, where he got very specific series of images describing an assassination attempt that was going to occur on Bush. And if you go back and read about the news reports uh, from uh, that drug summit that happened in February of 1990, uh, there were t intelligence reports that the uh, drug cartel was going to uh, launch a rocket, which they presumably had attained from the uh, anti-Soviet forces that, that were fighting in Afghanistan. And they were going to launch a rocket and kill the president of the United States. Well, Stephen Greer claimed he had a, a remote view that was so vivid, it was like he was there. He was flying with Air Force One. He saw the rocket come up at the level of knowledge. He was able to identify all of the um, units uh, that were in the field, Colombian def Defense Force, some of which had been infiltrated by the, uh, the um, drug uh, cartel. And he, he wanted to call, but his wife says, oh, no, don't do that. Don't, don't call. They'll think you're crazy. You know, you get into trouble. This is ridiculous. But he does reportedly call the White House. He says, um, you know, I'm a country doctor, small country doctor, a call town country doctor. And uh, I get these images sometime and sometimes they come true. They, they put him on the phone with, a, with someone who clearly knew 
the president's itinerary because he then was asked to describe where the mountains were, where the airport was, where the rocket came up. And he was even able to identify, Dr. Greer reported, was able to identify the units. That, and, and they were taking down all this information very seriously. Um, the president's travel plans did change. I'm not saying that it was because of this information, but it may have been confirm confirmatory to other intelligence. And uh, so in 1990, uh, this raging contactee, prime contactee, uh, pops up on the radar of the executive intelligence service branches, okay? Uh, in 1991, according to the CSETI director, and I believe he was telling me the truth as he knew it at that time. Other people who don't particularly care for him will say it's all made up. But according to the CSETI director, sometime in 1991, in full uniform, an intelligence officer for a major armed service shows up and says, we are aware of you. I think this may have been after the first uh, successful CE5 in in Asheville, North Carolina in the spring of 1991. It was around that time, I don't have the specific date. But this intelligence officer allegedly said, um, we wanna help you uh, uh, bring forward this information. And um, this is somewhat awkward to say, but according to the CSETI director, this intelligence officer allegedly said, I believe you've been put here on earth by God to open up our civilization to contact with ETs. Well, if you know Stephen Greer and you know the trauma that he experienced as a child and the tremendous efforts he had to overcome, you know, a, a childhood of abuse, physical, psychological, and other forms of abuse, um, you have to have a very strong ego to overcome those things. Right. But for someone, someone who, um, has a weakness for, shall we say, uh, excessive pride or hubris. You know, hearing a full uniform intelligence officer saying that you, we believe, you, I, he said, I believe you've been put here by God. That's like mother's milk. You know, wow, that's just yeah. like a rush. And that was the first step uh, and as part of his involvement with the intelligence service. He also told us that when he first wrote the um, the initial manuscript, self-published uh, manuscript about the, the project, he submitted it to a number of people, one of whom was uh, an executive in aerospace, I believe, who said to him, and I'm quoting the CSETI director, that's the best analysis of the overall situation that he's ever read. So people, not only from the executive branch of the intelligence services, but also uh, corporate executives. This is 1990, 91. Yeah. Uh, very early in the game. So he followed a similar pattern as Bill Moore, Tom DeLong developed along the same lines, although each of these individuals are different and each historic period uh, had its challenges that were different, but this was a pattern that is described so very well by managing magic. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I know even the, um, the early, uh, briefings that Dr. Greer claimed to give, um, you know, some people question of, uh, you know, whether that occurred or not. Uh, actually, uh, James Wolsey has gone on the record in the la last few months on, uh, on the Black Vault, and, and James Wolsey said, you know, maybe he embellished the story a little, but yeah, something like that actually did happen. 
I, I was I was part of the CSETI leadership when that meeting was being planned. And so I, I got to meet uh, Peterson from uh, the, the Arlington Institute, who was a friend of Woolsey. So I, I can fill people in on the uh, circumstances and uh, the the absolute uh, vitriol of the so-called uh, nuts and bolts ufologists against what we were doing was, I mean, the hatred of of, of members of the UFO community against not only Stephen Greer, but also anybody who was bold enough or crazy enough to try to engage the phenomena was, 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 was ferocious. Not only did we have to face the attacks of people within MUFON, but we were also being followed by the intelligence services. And I can talk about some of our challenges there. My team was buzzed by Blackhawk helicopters. Um, there were security types at almost every site that we chose before we had even gotten into the field when we were just scouting things out. So there's a lot of uh, information to show that not only was the CE5 network picked up on, on the radar scope of the intelligence services, but they were also, in my judgment, monitoring our, our situation. Yeah, so, you know, uh, those meetings did happen uh, with Wolsey and, and uh, Admiral or Vice Admiral Tom Wilson and um, General Patrick Hughes, mm -hmm. and uh, you were you were actually kind of there. I was in Washington D.C. when they went out to meet um, Admiral Wilson. I got to meet uh, Edgar Mitchell in the spring of 1997. It was was quite a thrill to meet a man who walked on the moon. What a gentleman! And it was it was a delight. I was part of the leadership until 1998, when a series of personal and political falling outs occurred, uh, which uh, is not unique to Dr. Burks. Uh, almost every prominent activist that Dr. Greer has drawn, drawn to him leaves in dismay over, over uh, both personal and political challenges. Yeah, so let, let's actually hit on that point. I think that's, uh, that's important to, to uh, the development of CSETI and how CSETI developed for where, where it went. And I guess uh, is almost non-existent now. It's I guess uh, actually serious disclosure. It's not even CSETI officially anymore, from what I understand. Even though they still use the symbol, um, CSETI is not mentioned as it was when CSETI was kind of a pioneering effort in the in the '90s, which you know then the disclosure project gained some some popularity. Um, but so from that end. Um, what, what was your, your falling out like with, uh, with CSETI? Well, it came in a series of st stages, okay? Um, I had, I mentioned there was a, a young man who surfaced in our emergency room. His name, I'll call him Misha. He was a, he, he made the remarkable claim that he's, uh, when he was in the former Soviet Union, he was in Belarus, white Russia, uh, Jewish background. Um, he, he, uh, actually came from the same part of the world that my grandparents came from uh, when before, before the First World War when they emigrated to the United States. I'm of Jewish background, Russian Jewish background. And uh, so this emergency room EKG tech surfaces and he says, what do you think about UFOs? And I said, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. What about UFOs? Uh, there's gotta be some life out there. That was at a point where I was not ready to come out to announce to my medical group what I was doing work. But he claimed that when he, when he was in Russia, he had a, a lucid dream where he travels to the United States, emigrates, 
gets a job in a healthcare setting and does contact work with a tall, bearded Jewish doctor. I was blonde back then, now I'm mostly white. And, uh, and he claimed that when he got to the emergency room as an EKG tech, I was the guy in the dream. You know, I, I can't vouch for that, but I can vouch for this individual who I call Misha, was a prime contactee. He liked CSETI director, was a teenager with no parental encouragement or supervision, started doing yoga, deep meditation. He had a series of sightings and other uh, high strangeness events, including perhaps a healing. And uh, as soon as he joined my team, the level of contact went way up. And uh, I mentioned I was having limited telepathic inter interactions and downloads. So Misha is with our team. And in 1995, I wanted to continue to publish on the net reports of uh, the LA CSETI group. When we have an encounter, have a sighting, I wanted to put that information out because I was of the opinion that the only way we're going to succeed is to end as rapidly as possible, grow the number of teams. So I was traveling in different places. I helped facilitate a team in Vancouver, went to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was moving around and doing organizing work, kind of like the kind of stuff I used to do when I was in the peace activist, except I was promoting this other. Well, there was the city director, Stephen Greer says, you are not allowed to put on your documents LA CSETI reports. And I said, wait a second. You know, we're doing the work, we're, we're having success. And how we're gonna encourage other groups if we don't share that excitement about our, our activities to encourage them to do the same. He said, no, 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 there's only one CSETI, you know, it's in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is very interesting because it has to do with also monitoring our group, the intelligence services, this is, this is priceless. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm pretty furious because although I, I certainly respected the CSETI director, I did not agree with his decision. Uh, and I was, I was so angry that I said, okay, we're going to form a new group. Yeah. And we're going to call it HICE, Human Initiated Contact Experience, H-I-C-E. And so one of my team members says, what's, what's the difference between HICE and and CSETI, I said, it's the CE5 initiative without Stephen Greer. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're communicating back and forth, nothing, not, not just email, and which I'm trying to get a team together and putting out our, our literature and we're ready to break with the parent organization, which was something I did not want to do because it's divisive. I thought it would be weak. And in a certain sense, um, there were groups that wanted to stop us and I did not want to divide up our strength, uh, but I would be damned if I wasn't going to share our work. Yeah. So I had this very, shall we say in diplomatic, we had a very business-like conversation, which in diplomacy usually means tete-a-tete, -tete, you know. I yeah. said to Stephen Greer, I said this, he said, if you do not allow me to publish my work with our Los Angeles team on the internet, then when we have further success, which I was describing to him and to everyone else who would listen, we will not be able to give credit to the parent organization. I didn't mention I was planning to break with him. In other yeah. words, I was saying, I have in the form of Misha, my own Stephen Greer, 
we, he's, he draws the phenomena in, we have the interactions, we can do the work without you. And, and our success will not go to, to, the, to the benefit of the, the parent organization, CSETI. At that point, we, we came to a impasse and a compromise was made. I, I could publish my reports, but I just had to say um, the opinions and findings of, that are described in this report are not of Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence and only represents the opinions uh, of and observations of the authors of the reports. Right. I didn't like it, but I was I was able to stay in the organization for another two two and a half years after that. Uh, but there were others. Now, ultimately, this is the form that the CE five network, as poorly organized as as we are, this was the form that it took. Eventually, over the decades, large numbers of people are, were introduced to the process, and they are writing about their reports, but not as C SETI, but as people who they identify with the CE5 initiative. I think it's about time that we start considering using a different term because of what you've described as the stigma associated with CE5 and has to do with the misinformation and misleadership of the CSETI director who I regret has uh, changed quite a bit from those early days that I've described. Oh, back then was, um, I mean, was everything fine and dandy other than the incident that you described? Um, did you see anything else going on with, with Dr. Stephen Greer as he went on um, from that point until you took, I guess, until you left in, and I believe, uh, 98? Um, there were, you know, the uh, Stephen Greer was a, a splendid organizer of the CE5 initiative during the early years, and he worked every, every month, one or two weekends while he was working in the emergency room. He would travel all over the country, very dedicated, very inspirational. He showed the videotapes of the Gulf Breeze encounters and that, that got a lot of interest and activity. But his increasing involvement with the intelligence services uh, and took the form of what was called Project Starlight and then that became the Disclosure Project. Um, that was taking his energy and his focus away from uh, organizing teams. People in the, the network felt, I didn't feel particularly abandoned, but there were complaints. You know, what is he doing meeting with all these uh, intelligence people, Woolsey, you know, let's build the CE5 and F. Well, there was just so much oxygen in the room. And over time, the CE5 initiative got, didn't get access to the oxygen. It all went to Project Starlight. And so we uh, were operating pretty much on our own Nevertheless, in 94 and 95, um, he and the working groups continue to uh, operate it. And I can describe at some later point, the very successful encounters that he had uh, with uh, Sherry Adamak in um, um, the um, northeast of Mexico. It's, it's the called um, um, Los Mitres Mountains. Uh, they had an amazing counter in December of 1994, which Sherry wrote a report on, which uh, is on the internet you can read about. So, but Starlight eventually uh, took, took over pretty much all his energy. Um, and um, there were other things that happened uh, in terms of um, the way he uh, handled uh, 
people in the network, certain discourteousness, a lack of respect. Um, and uh, we got to see a, a dark side of Dr. Stephen Greer. Uh, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there was Dr. Jekyll, who was a paragon of virtue. And there was Dr. Hyde, a, a, ver a dark, angry side of him, which is not unexpected if you imagine the kind of uh, abuse that he had to deal with growing up uh, in the circumstances described in his autobiography. Uh, nevertheless, those were exciting years. I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, you know, I'm grateful for what I was able to take out of that in terms of my understanding of the phenomena, uh, but it did lead to me leaving in, in 1998. I turned in my resignation, yeah. Was there, was there some, one event that triggered your leaving? Well, there was personal stuff, which was insulting, but um, I'd rather just keep that as personal. I think sure. I was not the only one who was insulted by Stephen Greer. I can, I can name many activists who left the organization uh, in, in a state of uh, dismay after uh, unparalleled display of hubris. Do, do you want to mention any of them? Okay, Joe. Sure. Uh, Debbie Hofovich. Uh, there's... Uh, Costa Macris, there's uh, Dr. Jan Bravo. Um, there's, there's a whole range of people who, some of whom well, continue, continue to be active, but many others are people uh, who pay thousands of dollars to go to um, the so-called ambassador training and uh, describe behavior which they found very insulting to the point where I have uh, coworkers in the network that you know, they're, they're, they, they get angry every time I mention Stephen Greer's name, because I mean, there's one contact activist who's very successful. He got a telepathic override to stay away as far as possible from Stephen Greer. So yeah. uh, I, I can't vouch for that, but I, I, I don't think he's the only one who's been warned. Yeah. Well, and you even had people like um, Ed Mitchell uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, he actually left in support. I mean, he stopped supporting Dr. Stephen Greer after, after some point, uh, I think in the early 2000s, if not earlier. Yeah, uh, he, he, you, I've posted articles where his uh, change of attitude uh, was described uh, in terms of, he claimed that Dr. Greer exaggerated, which I know he does, it's a, she's a showman. And uh, a certain amount of poetic license, I guess you can look the other way, but when it becomes to the point of embarrassing, uh, and then he became a, a monger of the most outrageous conspiracy theories, some of which I think he's being fed by his contacts in the intelligence services. Uh, that's, um, and his very divisive position now about um, the, this openness that we are now experiencing as a result of the efforts of Tom DeLong and the people around him, Semi Van and Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, that whole analysis that this is a, a false flag operation is, is peddled nonstop from the very beginning with not a shred of proof. Right. Oh, then to mention that, oh, 40 years ago, uh, a famous German rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, through his uh, associate, uh, warned that this might happen. Well, 40 years is a long time. Yeah. If this false flag operation was in pr uh, process, what's taken them so long to mount it? So again, these are positions that um, he may tweak from time to time, but I think he's being worked 
by people uh, who aren't, don't have his interests or the interests of UFO disclosure or the contact network at heart. I could be wrong, certainly wouldn't be the first time, um, but I, I try to admit my mistakes and Stephen Greer has difficulty doing that in, in any situation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't think he, I've never really seen him do that, um, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I kind of, I tend to agree with you that, you know, he's being fed information. I don't think he's just making it up. I think he is being fed information. Um, and he does have a bias on witness he uses. Um, you know, he um, has let used- give, Let me give you an example, okay? Sure. This is something that people may not be aware of. Um, in behind closed door briefings, which was uh, an operation to promote Project Starlight in 1998. That's where I got to, 1997. That's where I got to meet Edgar Mitchell in spring of that year. Washington was full of cherry blossoms, April. And after that, behind closed door briefings where members of Congress were briefed by some of the witnesses that later went on to appear in the Disclosure Project. Edgar Mitchell was there. Uh, was a prominent senator from Alabama. Trent Lott was there, I think, or maybe a few other uh, Congress people or their staff were there. And uh, there was one witness that showed up who um, was scary. Uh, he was an intelligence operative. According to the CSETI director, this uh, man had been in a meeting, in a, in a, a, a skiff, uh, where there were corporate and other powerful players around, they were talking about how a false flag operation might be conducted. Now, this individual who was at the meeting, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked in an emergency room or you had to deal with gangs, but you look into the eyes of this man, immaculately dressed, $1,000 suits, and uh, I looked into his eyes and I said, this guy has either tortured people or has seen people tortured. And the story went, went that this individual, this, I'll call him Agent X. Do you know who he is? No. Okay. Agent, Agent X, uh, according to the CSETI director, was going to come actually state what I just described. Yeah. Two members of Congress. This was... Uh, not only uh, an idea, but an actual indication that there were plans in existence for a false flag operation. Well, this was 1997, okay? Now, although this elegantly dressed and very sophisticated and charming individual uh, was at the uh, cocktail party the, the night before, and he was charming these celebrity ladies, I mean, heiresses, I mean, he was just, quite an individual, but his eyes had, were ice. And he then didn't show up the next day and nobody, where is he? Where is this individual? According to the CSETI director, that individual was interceded, it was uh, taken into a safe house by his friends in the intelligence uh, community and said, you're not going to be off giving testimony on this. Uh, uh, he wasn't hurt anyway, but he, the, he was told that this story was not for a public consumption. Now, I can't prove any of this, what I've just told you. This is my impressions based on being there, what I saw, but it's conceivable that such plans do exist or 
people within the intelligence community would want someone like Stephen Greer to think those plans are existent and are being prepared. Uh, so um, I don't think Dr. Greer is making it up. And I gave that as an example of uh, one type of experience that might lead someone uh, for reasons that are understandable, but nevertheless incorrect in my judgment to think that false flag operation is what is happening, being planned for this uh, openness that we're getting the benefit of. Yeah. And then you had, um, he, you know, in, in the unacknowledged film, he used Richard Doty as a, almost like a, a key witness, you know, um, which it's, it's, you know, again, it's highly controversial because, you know, we know that Richard Doty was a counterintelligence office, uh, counterintelligence officer with um, Office of Special Investigations for the Air Force. Yeah. Um, and, and Dr. Greer utilized him for the film. Yeah. However, yeah, when you have, about, you're talking about unacknowledged. Unacknowledged, yeah. Um, so it's quite a remarkable two-hour interview. I recommend that people watch it on the internet. Um, it's, Doty is a very colorful character. I, I, I had a chance to spend a few days at a conference where we both were speaking. The guy is he's funny. He's charming. Um, really sets you at ease. He's a good. He's a good uh, case officer. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, but and, and so from going from that, and then you know when you have somebody like Luis Elizondo. Um, you know, Dr. Greer immediately throws him under the bus, says he's this, he's that, he's bad, he's part of this evil plan. This, like, is how so this is so crazy because the same people, kind of people from the intelligence services that helped facilitate his work in terms of getting key witnesses to agree to come forward, that spoke at the disclosure uh, projects. May 2001 press conference. The same kinds of people ones that helped him are now pushing this effort. And all of a sudden it goes from something beneficial for all mankind when Stephen Greer is head of the project to some evil cabal, which by the way, has anti-Semitic overtones. And I would hope that Dr. Greer would stop using the term cabal, which comes from Kabbalah. And it's a totally distor distorted, perspective based on wild conspiracy theories. And that's, that's what Stephen Gurr has become from someone who's got high ideals to someone who's a monger of conspiracy theories. Right, because it's very divisive. And again, just a few years ago, he's, he's using Richard Doty in his film, which, okay, it's consistent with the Disclosure Project using these kind of witnesses. But now all of a sudden, uh, they're they're because they're not working with him. They're against him and and apparently everybody else. Knowing Doctor Greer um, as I do, I suspect that it's it's very hard for him to accept that he spent twenty five years of his life pushing this project forward um, and a lot of personal sacrifice. And he now is perceived of as playing second fiddle uh, and not conducting the the orchestra uh, with right. some as talented, as energetic, and as proud as he is, uh, it, I think he's suffering from the, what we call the green disease, you know, envy. Yeah. You know, envy, you know. The yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because, um, you know, he, he has done such great work, both with Project Starlight, the Disclosure Project, the rollout of CSETI. I mean, there was a great, uh, like you would say, network, not movement back then going on 
And I, I think a lot of that early stuff brought us to where we are today. Absolutely. But things have a way of turning into their opposites. And uh, if uh, Dr. Greer has fallen from grace, it's not by his own efforts alone. I think he's being worked. And, and the, the intelligence services are great. They have, I mean, they go to charm school. Uh, they, have, they are well-trained in manipulation um, and you just have to be vigilant. And of course, there's the whole issue of money, having to support his family after giving up medicine. You know, we, it's, it's impossible to go back. If you've been away from medicine for three or four years, you're out. Yeah. They don't need you anymore. Yeah, and when, uh, you know, there's one issue with the, um, when, when C-SETI or Dr. Greer had decided to raise the, um, the tuition for the, this ambassador trainings, I, you know, I spoke to, I'm not going to say who, I spoke to somebody within, you know, lead roles of C-SETI. And, uh, you know, I was saying, listen, this is not conductive to, to mobilizing field workers. This is not, if you want to get more people doing this, this is not how you're going to do it. Um, and they said, I, you know, I, I know, and I agree with you, but this is what Steve wants to do. And, you know, this is Steve's show. Um, you know, so that's, it was unfortunate to see that happen, but, uh, on, on, on the counter of that, you know, it motivated me and others to just put everything out there for free and, um, and, and help to kind of build a, a network online where you can learn this and, and, and start your own working groups without, um, you know, having to go through uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Greer. This is our birthright. This is our birthright to be able to have freedom of association. Uh, and if there is an advanced intelligence here reaching out to us, whatever they are, ultimately, we're going to find out in the process of engaging them. And we have a right as world citizens to do this work. And nobody can, can appropriate it, can put a copyright on it. There is no copyright on consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And just um, uh, one more thing about the, the whole C-SETI thing. You know, it's, it's noteworthy that um, just before or during the release of the film Sirius, the, uh, just about the entire team, the whole entire board of directors left. Yeah, that's right. December 2012. I'm aware right. of that. And uh, do you know why why that happened? Well, I, I've, I don't have any prime. I, I tried to get a hold of Dr. Jan, uh, Jan Bravo and Emery Smith, uh, neither of them would respond to my request. So I, I have only secondary sources of people who, who knew them and spoke to them. And so I'm now third source, but the rumor is, and this is a rumor and you know, free information and that sometimes it's worth what you pay for it, nothing. But that, <laughs> that proviso, um, my understanding was that um, Dr. Greer insisted that the first movie, the Sirius, that was ready to go, be re-edited, uh, that uh, principal witnesses and co-workers like Jan Bravo and um, Costa McCreese were gonna be cut out of the, of the video, which would have been bad because I saw the video and it was a mixed, mixed bag, but the good, one of the good parts was that it wasn't just Dr. Stephen Greer, it was other voices showing that this can happen, it's real. Uh, so they were to be cut out and he was holding up the, the money from the- uh, um, The production fund company. Fundraised to pay the yeah. producers, both the director and producer. So there was some, something 50 or $100,000 that Dr. Greer was using uh, as a way of 
coercing them to edit the film the way he wanted it. At that point, uh, the, the board of directors, including Jan, Emery Smith, and then there was an oceanographer, uh, I forgot his name, from New England, who was also on the board. They uh, had access to the, the bank. They wrote a check for the amount that the director and the producer were owed, and then they resigned in mass. Okay, now, but this is secondhand or thirdhand information. Um, I, I think it's ha this is the way it happened, but I think people need to uh, uh, get the primary sources if they're going to put more confidence in it than I can subscribe. Yeah, um, and you know, it is a fact that the, the the entire board of directors did leave, though that did happen. Yeah, um, and uh, they've been remarkably silent since all just about all of them. Um, right. So that that's very puzzling, and I think concerning um, that they really they kind of just went on the low key at that point. Um, Which has again, their own story. Each of them has their own story and their, their, their reasons for are, are diverse. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm just going to end it here again uh, because, you know, Dr. Burks, uh, you know, it's an honor having you on. I think you're like a national treasure or international treasure, cosmic treasure of, of, of this rich history of, of contact and, and, and even the UFO subject. Um, so it's a pleasure and an honor having you on here. And I, um, uh, am definitely going to have you on again for, I mean, this could be the beginning of, of a long but series. Really? We, we didn't even scratch the surface. Not at all. Yeah. The, the consciousness connection, uh, for people who want to read more of the, about my work, I have the first 50 pages of path to con contact edited by Jeff Becker. That's, that's my story. Paths to contact. It's on the internet, uh, Amazon. Uh, also, I co-authored with Preston Dennett a, a chapter on UAP healings in the free compendium Beyond UFOs, a very important chapter. And, and then coming out in the fall, uh, Ray Hernandez, my friend who uh, is the driving force behind Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters Free, has also formed a new group called I, is called CCRI, yeah. Consciousness and Contact Research Institute. And we're putting out another compendium and I have a 45 page chapter with oh, several score footnotes about the consciousness connection uh, between humans initiating contact and the intelligence behind the phenomena, as well as an explanation of the virtual experience hypothesis that outlines the role of illusion in, during interactions with the phenomenon. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave some links in the description. Uh, Ray Ray actually sent me uh, one of your new chapters last night. I was talking to him, um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to the CCRI uh, volumes that are coming out. Right. And um, well, a new reality is the title. A new reality. Yeah. And, you know, very fitting. <laughs> so uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Burks, for coming on, and I look forward to having you on next time. Okay. Take care, buddy. Bye.